guys. Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. Everybody doing well this morning? You finished spring break. Congratulations. Way to go, right? Did everybody have a good, relaxing and restful spring break? Some of you are looking at me like, what break? What are you talking about? Uh, at least you hopefully had a break from traffic over the last couple of days as people were often vacationing and celebrating. It is a week that we tend to commemorate the, the changing of the seasons, right? We take a break. We, we go on these vacations and we have these opportunities to do some things that are hopefully a little bit more fun, a little bit more memorable. Um, but there are other ways that we commemorate the changing of the spring season, right? There are a lot of ways that we, we embrace this idea that we finally have entered into a warmer climate, that we finally have clear skies and more comfortable temperatures, and there's a lot of things that people do to celebrate this change. And, and when I think about the, the arrival of this better weather, it always fascinates me that somewhere along the way, when we had this wonderful opportunity to have this opportunity to get outside and enjoy all these different changing seasons, somewhere along the way in the course of human history, somebody said, you know what I want to do? I want to clean. And for whatever reason, people embrace this idea to the point where it's now a phrase, and we actually refer to spring cleaning. Like, that's the last thing that I want to do when the temperature changes and spring arrives. And so I kind of got to thinking about it. Where did this come from? Like, where did this idea of spring cleaning originate? And I was researching this and came across an article that referenced an article in the Washington Post that was written about, I don't know, somewhere several years ago, but it talked about the, the 1800s and how in this point in time, this was back when people would still heat their homes with burning kerosene and oils and coal. And so as a result, they'd get this soot like all over their house, but they would wait to clean it. They didn't want to have to clean it in the winter because they would just have to keep reheating and it would just continue to get dirty. So once the temperatures finally changed, they'd open their doors and they would have spring cleaning. And so it kind of stuck. And this is, this is now a habit that people commit to, this idea of spring cleaning, which leads me to a question this morning. I want to ask you guys, I want to poll the congregation for a moment. I'm curious, how many of you here today would consider yourselves clean, all right? Now, be honest. Jesus is watching you, okay? Let's be honest. And I'm not talking about hygiene. I'm talking about just your home, your environment. How many of you would say you're clean people? Okay, there's a good number of you. Okay, how about the, the others, right? Let, we won't call you dirty, but we'll at least say how many of you are not, not so clean? How many people would admit to this? Who's undecided? Who doesn't really know where they fall? All right, see, I empathize with that third group because I've noticed that the way to really answer that question is, is really contingent upon who's defining clean, correct? Because that's a wide spectrum. And I was exposed to the, the variety on that spectrum, in particular in college and, and through having roommates each and every year. And I remember this sharp contrast between my sophomore year and my junior year of college. Because my junior year of college, I had a roommate that was very meticulous, okay? I mean, everything had its place. So like if I walked into his room or our room and I set the mail down on the coffee table and dropped my bag on the floor, I would always be reminded that this was like an egregious offense against our space. And it would always be, always be met with some sort of sigh of disapproval, you know, kind of that, you know, passive aggressive. Then he'd stand up and he would just, he would just straighten the mail. He wouldn't even move it. He just like straightened it on the coffee table. So in this scenario, I was the slob. Okay, and so I got used to being the slob with this guy as my roommate, which was a, quite a contrast from the previous year. My sophomore year, I had two roommates, and this was a totally different living experience. In fact, I remember one time walking into our room, and my one roommate was sitting on the couch playing guitar, because that's what you do in college, right? You play guitar. And then the other roommate was standing in front of the closet getting ready for his class. 
And, and I stopped right as I entered in the room because I noticed there on the coffee table was some spilled milk. And I'm not talking like, you know, a couple of drops, you know, that dripped as you were eating cereal. I mean like cup turned over puddle of milk. And so I'm, I'm standing there and I see this and I go, so like who spilt the milk? And, and my one roommate that was getting dressed, he casually looks over his shoulder and he's like, oh, that was me. And I didn't realize this was going to require a follow-up question, but I was like, so are you going to clean it? And he looked casually again and goes, eventually. And I just thought, mind blown. Like, when did spilled drinks become an eventual mess that you get to? Like, no, clean it right now. So here, I was the clean one, okay? And so I've noticed through the spectrum of having roommates that we all develop different philosophies and different methodologies of how we determine what is clean and unclean, okay? And this is really important because when you get married, those philosophies merge, and now you have to adapt to one another. And, and so there's a lot of different ways in which people determine how they're going to clean their area. Have you noticed the, the rise in popularity with this book called The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up? You heard of this? Marie Kondo? International bestseller. She's even got a show on Netflix, I think, somewhere along the way. And, and she will come into people's homes and teach them this is how you clean, right? This is how you fold clothes. And it's a remarkable, uh, I guess, momentum with this industry. And one of the things that she utilizes in her philosophy is that if anything is in your space that doesn't bring you joy, get it out, right? If you look at anything and it doesn't make you happy, get rid of it. And that's her philosophy. They call this the uh, Marie approach. And I didn't realize it at the time, but about a year ago, my house was Marie, And I was sitting in my living room, and all of a sudden, Jennifer comes walking out with her arms filled with hanging clothes. Okay, she just comes walking in the living room and just drops them in the middle of the living room. And at first, I kind of got nervous. I was like, is she leaving? Like, I thought things were good, you know, like, did I say something? What's wrong? And then she just kept bringing out all of her clothes until literally every article of clothing was in the living room. And she went through the whole process. You make me happy, you make me not. You make me happy, you make me not. And she got rid of a ton of clothes. Okay, so you could take that approach. I also came across another article that, that really kind of speaks more to just the, the responsibility of cleanliness, right? There are just certain tasks that need to be done on certain regularity, and we just need to maintain this commitment. This is an article that was written in Good Housekeeping, and so what they did is they identified things that you should do every day, every week, every month, every six months, every year. And I read this list, and I was shockingly embarrassed at how little of these things I actually do in my own life. Let me give you a few examples. You can keep score at home. Uh, every day, clean your coffee maker, wipe down bathroom surfaces, squeegee your shower walls. Okay, every day, apparently. Sanitize kitchen and bathroom sinks. Every week, scrub bathroom surfaces, clean mirrors, clean the inside of the microwave, sanitize your sponges. I didn't know that was a thing, right? My idea of sanitizing the sponge is throwing it away and go buy a new one, right? Every month, vacuum vents and woodwork, dust light and fixtures and blinds, clean the dishwasher and laundry machine and vacuum, clean the things that clean, apparently, every month. Every three to six months, wash a shower curtain, freshen the drains, clean the inside of the oven every year, clean the chimney, deep clean the carpet and upholstery. So I don't know how you're matching up, but the point is there's a lot of different philosophies that people utilize to clean their homes. Here's what we do in my house. Okay, if you want to know our motivation for cleaning, you want to know our philosophy, it typically is driven by one all-important question. At some point, we simply ask ourselves this, is anyone coming over? Right? And if the answer is yes, 
then some form of cleaning will take place. But there's still like this process. It's like, okay, well, who's coming over? Okay, in-laws? Okay, yeah, we need to get serious, okay? We need to really scrub every surface. No, they know us pretty well. We'll be okay with this mess over here. And then there's even the evaluation of like, yeah, but what part of the house will they see? Can we kind of transfer the debris in some of these other rooms and keep it confidential for a while? But this is how we typically clean. Is somebody coming over? But as soon as we know someone's coming over, we, we snap into action. And the point I'm trying to make is that with that methodology and with that philosophy for us, what it tells us is that when we know somebody's on their way, these things that it were previously neglected all of a sudden are elevated with importance, right? All of a sudden, this is the work. And in, in many respects, this is how we wait for their arrival, right? We're getting ready. We're preparing ourselves. We're, we're working in this specific task to demonstrate that once they arrive, we knew they were coming. And so that's the connection for us this morning, right? Part of what we look at today with this discussion on the ascension is the promise of Jesus' return. And what that should do for us is take these things that can so often and so easily be neglected and elevate them with importance, right? That we all of a sudden prepare ourselves, we get ready, we actively wait for his return. And the way in which we commit to that is by asking ourselves this question, what are we giving our lives to? What does that work truly look like? And that's what I hope for us to answer. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 9 through 11. Now, we're about three weeks into this series, and part of what we've discussed so far is just a little bit of an introduction, right? Part of what we've established is that our goal is for us to continue to grow in an understanding of what does it mean to stand on the promises of God, right? How does understanding God's promises change our conduct? How does it give us confidence? How do we move with that assurance and trust in what God is going to do? So in the first introduction to the series, we we looked at how this is part of a two-volume work that it pairs with Luke's gospel, and we looked at this summary statement in the first three verses of how Jesus provided instructions, he presented himself to the disciples, giving them many convincing truths, talking about the kingdom of God, and we worked through some of those details. Last week, we looked at the specific instructions, right? Wait. Wait on the Holy Spirit. And, and what we're doing now is kind of a, another couple of weeks of figuring out what does that waiting look like? How do we actively wait on these promises from God? Right? And part of what we know is that the extension of that and the details of those instructions is that we are going to be led into the responsibility of being witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so this is part of what we talked about last week. And yet all along the way... What we've identified is that the dividing line between Luke's gospel and the book of Acts is the ascension, right? With the ascension, we have this transition from the earthly ministry of Jesus to the heavenly ministry of Jesus. And today marks the day that we get to look at the ascension in its detail. And so if you have your Bibles, let's follow along. Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 9. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back. He will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. All right, several things that we want to dive into as it pertains to the ascension today. And before we get into there, I want to give a shout out to Will McDonald, great theologian in our church, great thinker and Uh, About a month or so ago, he told me about how he was thinking about teaching a class on the Ascension. And so as I started to prepare for this message, I sent him an email and said, okay, 
what resources do you have? What, what perspectives have you, have you gleaned at this point? And so he'll help me think through a lot of different angles that we're going to be talking through today. So grateful for Will and some of his contributions. And one of the things that he and I initially discussed was not even looking into the details of these verses yet, but just the, the, the state of Jesus that was ascended into heaven. Right? What we see is this very important understanding of the resurrected Christ, that, that Jesus was resurrected as a physical and spiritual being. Right? And that is very important. And that was the state within which he was when he ascended into heaven. Right? Think about the times that we talked about these convincing proofs when we went back and looked at Luke 24 and, and he's in the midst of the disciples and, and they begin to question and trying to wrestle with and understand who he is. And he says, listen, a ghost doesn't have flesh and bones as I have. And the many references to him eating with his disciples. Right? There is a physical representation of the resurrected Christ and that is the state that Jesus is in when he ascends to heaven. And I want to highlight that for us today because that speaks to the very hope that we should hold on to. Right? Too many times we reduce our hope in the resurrection and our hope in heaven to being someplace where our souls just get to drift off and float into the sky. But the hope that we see is that this resurrected Christ, this physical and spiritual representation of Christ, is the first fruit of the resurrection. Right? It is the example of what it is we can anticipate and hope for. That our restoration, our redemption, our resurrection will be both physical and spiritual. Right? Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 15 that we will be given these heavenly bodies. Right? The, the hope of Jesus Christ and the redemption of Jesus Christ is that we will reign both physically and spiritually in a new heaven and in a new earth. That is a remarkable reality for us to cling to. Part of what that teaches us is that each of us are made in the image of God. Right? Just by our own physical existence, we represent God's image. And that needs to be cherished. This is something that we, we hold on to to understand that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. But at the same time, we live under the curse. And so there are things about our physical existence that are not always um, what we desire or what God intended. Right? There are flaws. There, there are, are diseases. There is aging. And so we long to be set free from those flaws. We long to be fully redeemed. And so our hope is in a physical and spiritual redemption. And we see that in the ascension. Now, what are some of the details of the ascension? And I think this is where we get into some, some other important lessons for us this morning. The first thing that we see is that Jesus was taking up. Right? In fact, that word literally means to be lifted up. It has a directional message to it. And I think that's of significance and something worth considering. And can think about uh, uh, for a moment what would be conveyed to the disciples if there was any other direction within which Jesus moved during the ascension. Right? Let, let's say it was more horizontal or lateral or he just vanished. In, in some respects, that might have already occurred, right? Because he seemed to have this miraculous appearing through these resurrection appearances, right? That he would just all of a sudden appear alongside these two men walking along the road to Emmaus or behind these closed doors in a locked room. And so if he kind of just mysteriously vanished again or disappeared as he was walking away, kind of like in Field of Dreams, you know, as they're walking into the corn, like, I don't know that would have communicated the same thing. They might have been thinking, is he, is he coming back? Is there, are there more proofs, more teachings that he has to give us? But the fact that there, it was upward, it kind of conveys this finality to the moment. 
And we obviously don't have to think too hard about what it would have communicated, communicated if he had descended into the earth, right? I mean, that's a totally different message if that's what they had seen. But, but it would have been important because even in those times, the Jews equated Sheol, right, the land of the dead, to being in the earth. And so we can't run past the fact that Jesus ascended upward. And, and now that is something we need to consider for a moment because it doesn't mean that all of a sudden Jesus is just kind of floating around in the sky, that he's up in the Milky Way, right, that he's up in some space station. What it is saying is something a little bit more significant, and that's outlined through the use of the term heaven. Or was it three or four different times in verses 10 and 11 we have reference to the sky and to heaven? And so heaven is a term that is not just talking about a direction and not just talking about the sky it's talking about the abode of god the dwelling place of god this is a significant message what we see is that jesus is ascending to god this reunification so to speak in in jesus sitting at the right hand of god the father almighty this becomes an incredibly important and consistent teaching throughout the course of the new testament let me read to you a couple other passages of scripture that help us understand the importance of the ascension and where it is implying that Jesus has gone. Consider Hebrews chapter 1. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. So the idea that Jesus has ascended upward into heaven speaks to his superiority. Or what does Jesus say at the Great Commission? All authority has been given to me. So there is something to be said for the authority of Jesus Christ that is exemplified in the ascension, the superior um, qualities that he now holds by sitting in the heavenly realms at the right hand of God. And it's not just his authority. Hebrews 8 continues with, with some more elaboration. Now the main point of what we are saying is this. We do, not we do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord and not by a mere human being. And so now what we see also is that Jesus ascending into heaven, sitting at the right hand of God, serves as this critical function of him being the great high priest. It speaks to the sufficiency of the crucifixion. It speaks to the fullness of the sacrifice of the cross, right? That it was sufficient, that we don't need an earthly priest that consistently intercedes on our behalf to take away our sins. But Jesus serves as the great high priest that literally serves in the sanctuary of the Lord at the right hand of God. It's a remarkable description, right? This is part of what gets us to see the, the significance of this transition from the earthly ministry of Jesus to the heavenly ministry of Jesus. And it's further complemented with this description of the cloud, right? That this cloud hid him from their sight. Now, when I was little and I read stories about the ascension or I heard about it, like I literally pictured just a little white fluffy cloud taking Jesus up into the sky. You know, it's like this like plane of cotton balls or something, you know? And, and, and that's an innocent picture to have, but I would say it's woefully insufficient for the term that's being used here. Right? Because a cloud occurs in very critical moments in scripture i think back to the exodus here's moses he leads god's people up out of captivity 
out of Egypt. And, and then in their wanderings and in this new uh, venture of life, they set up a tabernacle, which is meant to be the dwelling place, God's, God's presence among his people. It's where the Ark of the Covenant rests. It's called this tent of meeting, where you can come and be in the presence of the Lord. And in Exodus 40, listen to this description. Then the cloud covered the tent of glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So with this cloud, we have an understanding of God's glory being representative at this ascension. But it's not just his glory. Consider the New Testament reference to the cloud at the story of the transfiguration. Luke chapter 9. Such a cloud enveloped Jesus and three of his disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration as a visible sign of God's presence and his approval of his son. Right, so with the cloud, we have this incredible depiction of God's glory, his presence, and his approval. And so the ascension comes with this remarkable image that is incredibly different from what the disciples held on Good Friday. This Jesus who was beaten and mocked and bloodied and wounded, now in this resurrected physical and spiritual state is clothed with the glory, the presence, and the approval of God as he ascends to sit down at the right hand of the heavenly Father. It's an unbelievable reality that they're taking in. So what does it mean for you and me? How has it become more than just a story? or a description of, of some piece of history. Well, part of what I want us to do to, to understand the significance of, of Jesus sitting at the right hand of God is to see how Paul weaves this into the application to the church in Rome. There's this wonderful passage, a familiar passage that we see in Romans chapter 8 that I think gives some great insight in terms of the implications of the ascension and Jesus sitting at the right hand of God for us. Just listen to this. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Here it is. Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? What a remarkable reality. The ascension of Jesus Christ and the fact that we see and understand that he now sits at the right hand of God gives us the confidence that he intercedes on our behalf. That with him there, we now have a hope that nothing can stand against us, right? That, that there is no one who can condemn because Jesus Christ, the perfect, sinless, spotless lamb, sits before the right hand of God interceding for you and me that we can have the assurance that nothing separates us from his love. The ascension gives this, this unbelievable promise of access and proximity to our creator. And I don't know that we fully grasp just how remarkable that is. Have you ever had like, um, like that one celebrity that you've thought, man, I'd really love to have a conversation with that person. You know what I mean? Like it's not just any celebrity. It's the one that you think, you know, if we talked, we'd be friends, right? Like just give me one chance. 
one chance to have that conversation. For me, it's typically an athlete or a coach. Uh, Bob Stoops would probably be at the top of that list for me. And I remember a couple of years ago, Jennifer taking me uh, up to Norman, Oklahoma, the promised land. And we spent some time there to celebrate my birthday. The kids were with me. Now, you don't have to hiss. Who hiss? Come on now. It was a joke. Anyway, we're up there. And we're walking around campus, and we're walking through the football stadium, and we see Bob Stoops' parking spot, and his car's there. And I kid you not, like, there was a part of me that thought, we're just going to wait here the rest of the day. And we're just going to wait until he comes out, because I just need need a minute, and then we'll be best friends, BFF. I'm telling you, this will be great. And I just assumed, like, you know, that's the sort of kind of connection that I could make. And it was all about how great it would be to have access. Just one chance. One conversation, one moment. And we can get so enamored with that in an earthly context to the point that we often miss that that remarkable access and proximity has been given to us through Jesus Christ. We get to sit before our creator and through Jesus see that he intercedes for us and assures us of his love. And so if you come in here today and you wrestle with maybe this, this sense that God feels distant or unloving or uncaring. Let me assure you that the ascension gives you the hope that you have access, proximity, and have been ushered into the presence of God. But I also want to ask you that if you don't typically live with that assurance, right, that, that maybe you don't move with that same sort of confidence that Paul describes in, in Romans chapter 8, my question for you is this, Why? What gets in the way of us moving with that same conviction and that same hope that we see outlined for us in the scriptures? And I want us to, to think through that. I'm going to come back to that here in a little bit. Now, part of what we also need to learn from this passage is what we see from the disciples' reaction. Right? So they see this re- miraculous ascension, and as Kevin put it earlier, they just stare up in the sky. Right? That, that word actually means to look at, to gaze, to stare. And part of what we can tell and kind of read into that description is that they didn't know what to make of it. <clears throat> they didn't know what it meant. But here's one of the things that I think we can deduce from that statement. Is despite the fact that they didn't know what to make of it, this moment eliminated all areas of doubt. You know, more than what? Four or five times in verses 9 through 11, we have specific terminology that is referencing that which can be seen. Right? Their sight. Or, or what it was that they observed. Or what it was that they could look at and this is not by accident luke is setting up this continual argument that becomes such a huge part of his work that the resurrection and the ascension of jesus was an eyewitness account they saw it with their own eyes it wasn't a concept it wasn't a theory it wasn't an ideology they saw the ascension of jesus christ now you and i it's easy sometimes to to wrestle with the validity of our faith. And it's easy to maybe think that this is some story handed down to us. But I want to encourage you again today, church. This is not some story. Our faith is built upon an eyewitness account. And so part of what we see unfold through the pages of Scripture, that as much as the crucifixion awakened their hearts to what Jesus did, it was the, the fact that they took in visibly the ascension of the resurrected Jesus that eliminated all doubt. And allowed them to move into these instructions that God had given them, right? To be witnesses. And now all of a sudden they knew, right? That word witness means to to testify to evidence. They saw this as fact. And as a result, 
they gave their whole lives to this responsibility. In fact, the word for witness is martis, where we get our word mart. The majority of these disciples, these apostles, would be so convinced of what they saw, they were willing to lay down their very lives. No, even more, they were willing to give every breath, every moment, every day to this message. Are you? Are you willing to, to move with that same conviction? Do you move with that level of certainty? I, you know, when I think about the things that serve as roadblocks for us, I tend to, to equate it to fear and doubt. Maybe we don't always assign those terms to it, but if there's something that's holding us back, something that is serving as this restraint for us embracing God's call, we typically can whittle it down to we're either afraid or we're unsure. Or you think about the story, maybe you just begin to question, did this really happen? How can we be sure? How do we know the Bible can be trusted? And how do we know that it's not made up? And how do we really know how to interpret it when this scholar says this and this scholar says this? How can this be trusted? Or how do I know that God is really good when I see so much pain and suffering in the world? In the world? And doubt begins to hold us back. Maybe it's fear. Right? We're afraid of what it's actually going to cost us. It, it sounds great on Sunday morning. It sounds great on, on Twitter and Facebook and social media. It's a great thing to quote, but it's terrifying to live it out. Because it's going to cost us something. What would people say? What would people think if I actually lived this out the way that it's intended? Would it cost me my dreams? Would it cost me my comfort? Would it cost me my finances? What would it actually cost me? Is it going to cost me these, these earthly indulgences that I keep giving into? At some point or another, it's either fear or doubt. And so maybe that's you. Right? It sounds good, you want to affirm it, but when it comes to actually living it out, when we walk out these doors, we begin to live our lives built more on fear and doubt than on the promises of God. And so how do we get past that? Well, part of what I want to do this morning is encourage you. Number one, I want to encourage you by reminding you Jesus knew it would be difficult, and so you know what he did? He prayed for you. John chapter 17. He knew we weren't going to be uh, the benefactors of being eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ and the ascension. This message was going to be handed down. And so in John 17, he said, I'm going to pray for those who will believe in their message. The Savior of the world has prayed for us to have the faith that it requires. He's called us blessed. Right, you, you can see that even his disciples wrestled with it. Right, even Thomas, he began to hear the rumors and he said, no, not until I see will I truly believe. And so Jesus appears and Thomas puts his hand in his side. And what does Jesus say? You believe because you've seen, but blessed are those who have not seen, but believe. So to embrace this, in the midst of fear, in the midst of doubt, leads you into a life of true blessing. And I believe the words that Jesus spoke to Thomas are the words that need to echo from generation to generation. That if you struggle with any of these things, be brought into the presence of God this morning. Look at the remarkable details of the ascension and hear Jesus say once again, stop doubting and believe. Easier said than done. But those are the words of our Savior. And so we see how this is such a significant piece of the response to the ascension. But just to add greater clarity, these angels appear to give further instructions. 
right? They show up and they say, men of Galilee, why are you looking in the sky? I kind of always imagine like the little league coach, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's like you almost can sense their frustration. Like, hey, quit playing in the dirt. Hey, quit picking flowers. Ball is coming your direction, right? Focus. And that's part of what they're trying to say here. Focus. Don't look in the sky. Your focus is no longer to be directed towards the sky. It's to be directed towards the earth. You've been given instructions, and now it's time to get to work. And so let us give you an assurance of why you can work this way. This Jesus, this same Jesus will return in the same way he's been taken up. Now, what does that mean? I don't believe the phrase in the same way means this literal, like, ascension in reverse, right? Like, it's going to be back on Mount Olives and, you know, the same little cotton ball cloud, you know? I mean, it's, I, don't, I don't believe it's like that same thing. What I believe <clears throat> is that it will be same in the sense that there will be a visible return of Jesus Christ. I believe it will be personal, and I will believe it will be filled with the presence, approval, and glory of God Almighty. And that is the promise that is now offered to these disciples. Jesus will return. And in that promise, it ignites them into action. It's, it's this assurance and this clarification of the ascension that serves as this catalyst to everything that we're about to read that's going to transpire that leads us to not just the awakening of the Holy Spirit, but the awakening of the church. Right? So they move with this understanding and with this conviction. And so you and I need to step into that same promise this morning. To really let these words sink in that Jesus will return. And what that should do for you and me even today. Let me encourage you with the words that we find in 1 Thessalonians. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. That's not just a verse. That's a promise. The commands of God, the, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet call of God in the dead in Christ will rise. And after that, we who are all still alive and are left will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So let me encourage you today, church. Let me remind you of the essence of the promise that is offered at the ascension. That our Savior does not sit in some ancient tomb. No, he will in fact return. Only this time when he returns, he doesn't come as meek and mild. He comes as a rider on a great white horse. His eyes are like blazing fire. And he comes with the armies of heaven. And his name is tattooed on his thigh. And it says, King of kings and Lord of lords, are you ready? Are you really ready? Have you allowed all these things that can be so easily neglected be elevated with importance so that you have gotten to work and committed yourself to the task that he has entrusted to us? The last thing that any of us would desire would be to see that day and us to be found having stopped waiting. The, the ascension, the assurance of the return of Christ is the catalyst that awakens us to activity. We actively wait for his return. 
we commit ourselves to being his witnesses in every area that he sends us. Not just being willing to give our lives, but give every breath, every moment, every day. Because we know he will return. So here's how I want to conclude this. I want us to think about the frailty of life. I want us to think about how our life, as the scriptures say, is but a mist. You know, I, as a pastor, I've had the opportunity in the last couple of years to grow in my familiarity of what it means to preside over a funeral. And so I constantly walk with families through these details of what it means to grieve the loss of life and observe all these different customs and practices that we cling to to help us through that journey. And one of the customs that we constantly go back to is an obituary. And I always wrestle with the, the concept of an obituary. Because no matter how eloquent, no matter how well written, it is just so unsettling to me to think that you take an entire life, every emotion, every thought, every memory, and you reduce it to a couple of paragraphs. And yet that's the reality for all of us. That at some point, our life is going to be reduced to a few sentences. What will it say? What are you going to give your life to? See, my hope is that we look at the amazing promise of Jesus' return. We look at this ascension and we don't give our lives to fear and doubt. We get worrying about what other people would think. Right? We, don't, we don't keep craving their approval and status and power. We don't live our lives for them. We live it for him. I pray that it would bring us out of complacency and some kind of perverted version of a Christian routine. That we would stop dreaming about the white picket fence and the 2.5 children and these curated lives that we can put on social media because I guarantee you when we stand before Christ we're not going to brag about our careers and our photo streams what are you giving your life to I pray that it erupts us out of these indulgences that continue to serve as shackles and restraints on the life that God has actually intended I pray that all of us would come and be mesmerized at the ascension of the resurrected Christ and all these things that can so easily fade in the distance would be elevated with importance and you and I would actively wait for his return. And at the very least, we can stand before his throne and say, I wasn't perfect, but I was ready. What would it look like for a church to commit to that? That's my hope. That's my prayer is that we can be ushered into the promise of his return and actively wait for this king. And then the simple question that we all have to ask ourselves, are we ready? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess that so easily there are times where we lose focus and we commit ourselves to things that are clothed more with fear and doubt than they are with the assurances of your promise. And so I pray that each of us here today, God, would be inspired and moved by the hope and the promise of your return. God, if there are things in our lives that, that can distract us and keep us, keep us from, from fully following you, 
that keep us from fully devoting ourselves to you. God, I pray that we would acknowledge those things before you today. God, and that we would move with joy, knowing that this, this life that is fleeting is still a gift, and you give it to us to bring you the praise and the adoration that you deserve. And so may we do it every breath, every moment, every day. God, and may we do it with the certainty and the comfort of knowing you will return. And so may our lives be a declaration of praise and help unleash us to this earth to go to the least, to go to the lost and tell them of the goodness of your promises. Father, awaken your church today. Unleash your power within each of us so that we can stand before your throne and at the very least declare we were ready. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen and amen. Let me offer a word of invitation to you this morning. Uh, This is always a time where we want to respond in worship to God and the things that the Spirit has stirred within each of us. And so at the very uh, least, what I would ask for each of us to do is to to respond to God and to to commit to a time of worship. Uh, And in addition to that, we do create space for any decisions that ever need to be made public. And so if you've never really given your life to Christ and are still seeking to understand what does it mean to have a relationship with Christ, then you can come forward and we can talk that with you, talk through that with you. Uh, If you need prayer for something, we want to pray for you. If this is a a church home that you want to commit to, uh, this is one way that you can join the church. You don't have to join it this way, but we we love to make that public if it's something that you feel comfortable in doing. Uh, But as is always the case, we want to respond in praise and adoration to our King. And so with that being said, let's stand and let's continue in a posture of worship.